You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Mike. Well, I want to join in, hopefully, many, many voices that have said good morning to you this morning. And as Mike said, we are in the Gospel of John. That's my sermon introduction. It goes like this. Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 3. It's a full morning. We're going to do something probably ill-advised, but to quote that great, great theologian, we got a long way to go and a short time to get there. We're going to do what they say can't be done. We're going to cover all of John chapter 3 today. Now, as I have been thinking about this morning, praying to God the Father in the name of Jesus the Son and in the power of the Spirit, my prayer is that every single person who is in this room, by the time we walk out, every single one of us will look to Jesus. And that's the big idea. That's the whole walkout wisdom for the morning is that every single one of us will look to Jesus. We are in the Gospel of John. We started this earlier in the fall semester, and John has written a masterpiece, a brilliant, inspired work to convert you, to convince you unapologetically, unabashedly, John wants you and I to believe that Jesus is the Christ. It's the whole theme of his book. He says it in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. This is what John writes. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but what I have written, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Not God-ish. He is God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so that's the idea, so that you will believe. Now, I'm going to begin reading in chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 to 15, and then we'll unpack it, and then we'll go on and see how far we can get. So John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. I'll invite you to just follow along with me. John chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Third time in verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
This is God's word. We are in a study of John. It's our fifth time together to, to, to walk through, as Mike said, uh, this gospel of John. So far, we've seen Jesus do some pretty amazing things in John's telling, and it's building. John has described Jesus transforming the waters of purification and separation at a wedding in Cana into the wine of fellowship and joy. That which separates and divides, Jesus creates fellowship and joy. Then we saw Jesus cleanse the temple, that that edifice to human striving and achievement. All the barriers and the divisions, Jesus says no more and he obliterates them. He creates connectivity. And at the end of that chapter, John tells us that Jesus knows the thoughts of men, of people, of humankind. He knows their thinking. He knows what they are all about. Chapter 3, we meet one of those aforementioned men. John's got a progression. We have to understand that chapter 3 comes right after chapter 2. John's telling us something. We've seen him obliterate the things that separate and create unity and fellowship and joy. Now we're going to meet a man named Nicodemus. So back to chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. There's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. There's a lot going on here. This guy, Nicodemus, he is a ruler of the Jews. It's redundant. Not only that, it's repetitive. Not only that, it says the same thing again. Nicodemus means ruler of the people. So John says, there is a man named ruler of the people. He's a ruler of the Jews. That's significant. John is telling us that this guy is the personification. He's the embodiment. He is Israel incarnate, at least. He is the religion of Israel incarnate. He is Judaism walking around. He's a Jew, but he's also a Pharisee. One of the 6,000 members of this party called the Pharisees, they put the fun right back in fundamentalism. These are the guys that are holding the line against the invasion of Greek ideology called Hellenism. The Pharisees stuck their foot in the ground and said, oh no, we're not doing that stuff. We're going to maintain our Jewishness and we're going to observe the customs of Moses. And they held the line. But not only is he a Jew, not only is he a Pharisee, he's also a member of the Sanhedrin. This is the the parliament of Israel, if you will. This is 70 guys made up of a two-party system, Stop me if this sounds familiar. A two-party system, and they don't get along very well. You you have the Pharisees, who are the fighting fundamentalists, and then you have the Sadducees. One likes Fox News, one likes CNN, and it doesn't really go so good together. See, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in much spiritual. They don't believe in anything after Deuteronomy, and so they're sad, you see? (laughs) Then you have the Pharisees, and these... 70 people, 35 of each, rule this council under the authority of the Roman Empire. The Sanhedrin rules Israel. And they do so by the law of Moses. This guy is something. He is religion incarnate. If you see Nicodemus walking down the street, you say, there is the man. He's what we're all after. He's what we're trying to look like. He's moral. He's good. He's obviously blessed by God because he's influential. He's he's wealthy. He has everything going for him. That's the exemplary model of morality in Israel. It's him. And John says, Jesus knows the thoughts of every man. And there is a man named Nicodemus. See, John's building a progression. Jesus has cleansed the temple and said, I am the temple. Now he's going to confront religion personified in the person of Nicodemus. Let's keep walking through this. 
This man came to Jesus by night, which is why we call this episode Nick at night. Do you see? Nicodemus comes at night. Now, we're not told explicitly by John why Nicodemus comes at night. There's a lot of theories for this. But in John's gospel and in all of John's epistles, John's always going to make a contrast between light and dark. Light is good. Dark is bad. I don't think that Nicodemus is necessarily sneaking around in fear or being creepy. He's Nicodemus. He's got nothing to hide. But I think what's going on here is Nicodemus does not want to be seen as someone who has the mildest bit of curiosity about this phenomenon called Jesus of Nazareth. So he would rather just avoid speculation, but something is going on in Nicodemus. He can't argue with the fact that this guy, Jesus, well, there's something special about him. He comes to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi. Now that's fascinating. He calls him Rabbi. It's really interesting on a number of levels because Jesus is not a rabbi. Now, he is a teacher. He teaches, but he's not formally and officially a rabbi. A rabbi receives authority when another rabbi disciples him for long enough and says, now you're ready, and gives him official authority. And so you got your authority from Gamaliel, or you got your uh, authority from Hithel, or whoever the authority was of the day. That's why Jesus does things, says things, and people say, On whose authority are you doing this? On whose authority are you saying these things? And Jesus says, "Uh, from my father. No rabbi is giving me this. I'm not a rabbi per se because Jesus was not interested in the rabbinic system of Israel. But Nicodemus is trying to elevate. He's trying to dignify. He's trying to sort of um, bring Jesus up to his level. Isn't that nice? Jesus will have none of it. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I have a sense that you're special, but I can't quite put my finger on it. You you seem like you're from God. Do you notice that Nicodemus' voice does not go up at the end? He's not really asking a question. And yet Jesus wastes no time. Jesus is economical. Jesus is efficient with his words. And he goes straight to the nerve center. Nicodemus is trying to like do this rabbinic game of rhetoric where he's saying something, Rabbi, we know that you're from God because you do some incredible things. Jesus has no time for this little game. And so Jesus answers him. Well, was there a question asked? Jesus knows the hearts of all men, do you see? What Nicodemus is actually asking, at least in his heart, if not from his lips, is, are you, are you really from God? Because at once, I think that would be awesome. And the other side is, you're about to obliterate my whole world. Because my whole world is about performance and perception. And if you're really from God and what you're saying is true, then I am about to be undone. And you can start to hear, even here, Nicodemus begins to get unraveled. We're going to see Nicodemus three times in the Gospel of John. Number one, here in chapter three. We'll see him again in chapter seven, where he defends Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Can you imagine a U.S. senator defending the way before Congress? Methinks no, unless something significant is happening. And then we'll see Jesus dead on the cross, removed by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus will get the blood of Jesus quite literally all over him. So Jesus 
answers him in verse 3. Truly, truly, amen, amen. Yes, yes. This is a saying of Jesus. He is speaking authoritatively, not as a rabbi, but as God himself. Yes, yes, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, listen, Nicodemus, you want to know what I'm all about and what I'm doing and what I'm up to, but I'm telling you, there is nothing you can do to know what God is doing unless you have been spiritually born by God. Jesus just totally changes the subject on Nicodemus and goes to the actual heart of the matter. You want to know if I'm from God. Let me just tell you, Nicodemus, you can't know anything about God unless you've been born again, or the word might be from above, depending on your translation. But the word is anethos, and it means both of those things. And so I think John is intentionally using this word that has a double meaning, born again or born from above, which is it? the answer is yes. Born from above, born again, either one. In other words, the religion of doing, any religion of doing, cannot and will not ever bring you into proximity with God, ever. And more, and more than a person can choose his or her, own, her, her, no more than a person can choose his or her own birth, can they choose his or her own rebirth, as it will. Jesus is saying, listen, you have to be born of God. God has to do that, and we've already been told that in chapter 1, verse 13, we don't choose our own birth. The kingdom, he says, you can't even see the kingdom. You're not even aware of its existence unless God is doing a work in you. The kingdom, by the way, where God's rule, his authority, and all of his blessing, though invisible, is experienceable and enjoyable here and now. You don't even know that it exists unless God is already doing a work in you. Well, verse 4, Nicodemus, uh, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, He's just not getting it. But it's not that he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. It's that he can't get it. Jesus has just said, God has to do a thing in you for you to understand what God's doing. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, I don't think Nicodemus is actually asking that. But he's still caught up on, okay, but what am I supposed to do? I hear what you're saying. A person can't know the things of God unless he's born again. So how do I do that? Now, I don't think he really thinks he has to enter his mother's womb a second time. He's engaging in rabbinic rhetoric. And again, Jesus has no time for this. He says in verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus is going to press in to Nicodemus and draw an astonishing conclusion. The stuff in the Old Testament, even though some of it was seemingly hard to understand, it means something marvelous. And though it may have been mysterious, it's now been made clear. Jesus says a person must be born of water and of spirit. And so as you can imagine, that's the kind of statement that has spawned all sorts of disagreeing denominations as to what that means. Well, clearly Jesus is saying it has to do with the level of moisturization at bat. No, 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 listen, listen. It's not about hydration. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, the ruler of the people, a ruler of the Jews. In verse 10, he's going to call him the teacher of Israel. We think that Nicodemus is probably the chief theologian of Israel. He's the chief rabbi of Israel. He knows his Old Testament, but he doesn't know it. And so Jesus is doing something brilliant here. He's going to quote scripture. He's going to quote Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. Now, Nicodemus would have been familiar with it, but it's just one of those passages that you read and you go, 
I, yeah, that, that's weird, and you yada yada, and you go back to those things that you do like to understand, right? This is what apparently the people of Israel were doing, because Jesus is making a direct quote from Ezekiel 36. Let me read it for you. Verses 25 to 27. God says to Ezekiel, and therefore to Israel, while they are in exile in Babylon, God says, but there's coming a time, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your, unclean, uh, your uncleannesses, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Who's doing the cleaning? God is. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I'm going to do a thing in you, Israel. And Jesus says, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> I know it's not what you expected. I know it's not what you anticipated. But all the stuff that God says he's going to do, that's who I am. That's what I have come to do. I know it's not what you thought was going to occur, but it's here, it's now, it's me. Just look, just look. Just look. Just look. It's, it's me, Jesus says. I am the one who's going to be that which God does. What he promised in Ezekiel 36, it's me. And Nicodemus has to take a breath and step back and go, what are you, what are you saying? You, you're claiming to, to be the blessing and the bringer of joy and the spirit of God himself, it's you. What? Jesus isn't done. He says, listen, anything that you can do in the flesh, it's only going to produce flesh. The flesh cannot produce spirit. Whatever you're trying to do in your human capacity to achieve, obtain, and earn, it's only going to produce that and has no lasting value. Flesh cannot produce spirit. Only the spirit can produce, which is spirit. God is spirit. He has to do a thing. Well, Jesus is going to explain this. Verse 7 and 8. He says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And Jesus does a little play on words. The word for air or wind is the same word for spirit. Pneuma, where we get pneumonia. The spirit or the wind or the air, it blows where it wills. You can't tell where it's coming from. You don't know why it's doing what it's doing. You just see the rustle of the leaves and the trees but you don't understand it, and you certainly cannot control it. You don't direct the wind where it's going to go. It's going to go where it's going to go. Do you know why? Because wind is sovereign. You don't stop it. You don't start it. It does what it does, and God is sovereign. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. God is sovereign, but good news He's not just sovereign, he is good and he is loving. Now see, that's the best news in the cosmos. If you have a God who is sovereign, that's horrible news, unless he's also good and loving. And then it's the very best possible news. He's good and he is loving. Well, verse nine, Nicodemus, I think, is rocked back on his heels and he says, how can these things be? And that's the question. For a person who has lived his entire life in a performance-based system, he's about to be completely unraveled. See, every other system of religion is performance-based. So how is this supposed to work? And Jesus is going to tell him, Nicodemus, verse 10, you're Israel's teacher. You should know better. It's not that Judaism is like every other religion. Judaism is the first fruit. It was always supposed to be about salvation by grace, through faith, in the atoning work of God on your behalf. 
In that case, it was the, the death of bulls and goats, but it was always an atonement by God that he would accept on your behalf, always. But you, Israel, you turned it into a works-based religion like every other one, which means it's false. It was never the plan. You've made it that. Do you not understand, Nicodemus? You've been reading the scriptures. You don't get it yet. You're Israel's teacher. How can you not understand what has been revealed in scripture? That's always been my plan. Then he's going to really press in in verse 11. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, meaning him and his disciples, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive. That's a key word. John will say in chapter one, we have seen, we have received, we bear witness, but you, you have not received. That is tantamount to rejection. When you do not receive, He says, you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I've tried to explain this to you, Nicodemus, but you're not getting it. How are you going to explain when I ratchet it up a level and tell you heavenly truths? And then Jesus does something marvelous. Everything that I've said so far in verses 1 to 12, you could say to somebody, I could say to somebody. I could have said it to Nicodemus. You could have said it to Nicodemus. But in verse 13, Jesus pivots. He does something astonishing. He totally changes tack. Now Jesus says something that only Jesus could have said. Listen to what he says. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. No mere man, no mere mortal has ever been to heaven and been back here. Nobody. I am no mere mortal. I'm not a rabbi, Nicodemus. I'm divine. I am the God you claim to know and love and worship standing before you. I am the son of man. And I promise you, Nicodemus' knees went wobbly. Because Nicodemus knows what that title means. No one can go to heaven and be back except the Son of Man. And we know that Jesus will be very clear in John chapter 9. He says, I am the Son of Man. Clearly, unambiguously, very aggressively. I am the Son of Man. Now that Son of Man title means something. Again, this is Nicodemus, Israel's teacher, the chief theologian, chief rabbi. He knows what the Son of Man means. The Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7. We're not going to read it now, but it's a glorious passage. It says, One like the Son of Man stood and he came forth and the Ancient of Days greeted him and handed him the kingdom. And he brought the entire world under submission. The Son of Man is a title of judgment. And Jesus pronounces, I am the Son of Man. And Nicodemus has to be thinking, Whoa, you kind of look like a run-of-the-mill carpenter from Nazareth. No offense, but when we hear Son of Man, that's Israel's hope. He's the one that's going to drive out the Romans. He's the one that's going to get rid of all the immoral people. He's the one that's going to get rid of all the people who don't play by the rules. And you're claiming you're the Son of Man. Jesus says, oh yeah. And then Jesus pulls the pin on the hand grenade and throws it in Nicodemus' lap. He claims to be the Son of Man, the one who will judge the world. And then Jesus completely 180s him. Listen to what he says in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is so wonderful. He knows the hearts of men, do you see? He knows what Nicodemus cares about. Nicodemus cares about Old Testament scripture. So what does Jesus do? He gives him Ezekiel 36. He gives him Daniel 7. And now he's going to give him Numbers 21. Just bang, 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 bang. 
Israel's teacher, let me make this make sense to you. I am the Son of Man, but it's not what you expect. In fact, the Son of Man that you think is here to judge, no, no, no. It's not what you expect at all. It's too good not to read. Keep your finger in John 3, flip back, or you can follow on screen to Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. This is all we get of this story in the whole Bible. It's just here. It's a short little story. It's sort of obscure, maybe even a little bit mysterious and not what we expect, but Jesus is going to draw on passages like this, like Daniel 7, like Ezekiel 36. What's my point? There is no unimportant scripture, particularly when the Son of God says it's me. Now watch what happens in Numbers 21, an astonishing tale. Moses says, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea. This is the children of Israel after they've come out of Egypt, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses, his leader. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. These are some stiff-necked, rebellious, arrogant ungrateful people. It is the height of blasphemy. God is giving grace. He led them out of Egypt. They didn't deserve it. They couldn't have gotten themselves out. God saved them and he's providing for them, giving them food and water. And they say, we hate this loathsome, miserable food. You're not good. We can't trust you. We wish you were not. You know what I would do if I was God? I would send snakes to bite those people. I'd be like, oh, you don't like the manna, huh? How about, like, how about some of that? No, 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 no. God would never do that, right? Verse six. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. Now we're talking. This is for me and God. We finally have something in common. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Yeah. Okay, well, that's, that's actually tragic. But I want you to understand what's happening. This is a story about rebellion and the wrath of God. God sent the fiery serpents. Make no mistake, they didn't just suddenly like, oh, it's noon, let's go bite some Israelites. No, God sent them. God did this. He is angry. He has wrath because people are guilty of arch blasphemy, not receiving him, rejecting him, attributing things to him that are not so. You hate us. You don't care for us. God sends fiery serpents. Verse seven, good reaction. And the people came to Moses and said, mm, our bad. We have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Always a good idea in repentance to be specific in your confession. It's, just, it's good therapy for your soul. I'm the kind of guy who, and I did it twice and I was glad about it. And I'm, be specific, it's okay. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Notice their prayer, please. Ask God to take the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. He's their intercessor. He is their prophet. He is their priest. He is their functioning king. Hmm. And he intercedes on their behalf. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. God doesn't take away the snakes. He doesn't even defang them. He doesn't have them stop biting the people. That's interesting. Make a serpent, set it on a pole. Everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, God is angry. 
because of their condition of rejection, the refusal to receive. And so he sends them snakes. Many people die. Make no mistake, this is a judgment. This is an outpouring of God's wrath. They ask Moses to intercede, and he does. And God mercifully, astonishingly, graciously turns away his wrath. He provides a way of escape. He makes or instructs Moses to make an image of the curse. Don't miss this. To make an image of the curse itself and to hold it up. So so do you see what Jesus is saying? I am the son of man, but I have not come to judge. I have come to be judged. Jesus says, I have come to be the snake. Whoa, 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 Jesus. You're not going to compare yourself to a snake, are you? That's kind of bad. We don't like snakes. They're evil. They're demons. They're bad. Jesus says, you don't understand the enormity of sin. I have come not to judge, but to receive the full judgment of Almighty God, the Son of Man, won't come as judge this time. He's come to be judged, to receive the full outpouring of the wrath of God. Whoa, Jesus, a a snake though? Are you sure? I mean, snake was in the garden in Genesis 3. He's like the embodiment of all evil. Jesus says, I know, I know. And I am going to become that. Because Galatians 3.13 says, he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He is the image of the curse Lift it up. Look to Jesus. What happens when the people were bit? They simply had to look. And here's what astonishes me. You have to understand that apparently some people said, no, I'm not even going to look. And they still died. In their rejection, their refusal, their hard-heartedness and stiff-neckedness, they simply refused to look and they died. But if you just look, if you, if you just look, You'll be saved. And Jesus says, the Son of Man will be lifted up so that whoever looks, who believes, will not perish, but will have everlasting life, beginning now. Not one day when you die. You just look to Jesus. This is Jesus' words to Nicodemus. Now, in the interest of time, we're going to pick up speed. Your Bible translation might have chapter 3, verse 16 in red letters. and might have it in black letters. What's the deal? Look up here. Every letter is red letter. It's all inspired by God's Holy Spirit. The question is, is this Jesus speaking or is this John giving commentary? A lot of different approaches, a lot of different thoughts on this. I'm going to tell you what I think in my humble yet completely accurate opinion. This is John's words. John has recorded, he has recounted this unbelievable incident where Jesus has told Nicodemus, religion incarnate, who he is and why he has come. And John loses it. He goes, well, don't you understand? Don't you understand? For God so loved the world. And he, just, he can't contain himself. He has to bust out in commentary. But make no mistake, it's still inspired by God's Holy Spirit. In all of my time in ministry, I have never preached John 3.16. I feel quite unworthy. It's the high watermark. It's the thing that a guy in a clown wig sits with a, with a poster board between the goalposts at every football game. It's the most famous verse in the Bible. And it's quite overwhelming. So let me just read it slowly. Verse 16 all the way through verse 21. I think John is commenting on what Jesus has just told Nicodemus. You see, the Son of Man will be lifted up not to judge but to be judged because God so loved the world. The world? 
That's in John's writings, in Revelation, and in his epistles, and in his gospel, the world represents the system that is dominated by the devil. It is godlessness. It is Christlessness. And God so loved that. Those rebellious, arrogant, spiteful, blaspheming children in the wilderness are the same hearts that we have today. And God so loved them. So when I hear people say, it's not fair. Not fair. God so loved the world. The system of godlessness that he did the unthinkable. He gave his only son. That son here is monogamous. It's not, it's not uh, that he was created or he came into being. He's always existed because he is God, the one who comes from, who proceeds from the Father. Not an angel, not a superhero, not a great rabbi, not a prophet, not a priest, not a king. His own son, God himself, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have, I prefer, everlasting life. Only God is eternal. We are everlasting. If they just look, if they just look, to Jesus. That's the command. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The son of man doesn't come to judge, but to be judged on their behalf. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. The poison and the venom is already in their veins because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I could spend weeks and weeks and weeks walking through all of this. Let me just be super brief. It goes like this. Verse 17 and 18 are about receiving versus rejecting. John's going to essentially say that there are three great grand judgments globally. There was the flood in Genesis 6 in which the whole world is baptized by water. There will come the third judgment in which the whole world is baptized by fire, 2 Peter says. But in the middle is a second global judgment and it all centers and comes to the cross of Christ. Now, it is impossible for you and I to go through the first judgment. That's history. That's thousands of years ago in Genesis 6, the flood. You are either found to be in the second judgment in Christ or you will still as yet experience the third judgment. The Son of Man came at first advent not to judge but to receive the judgment of God. But when he comes again, he will implement the third judgment. And so what John's going to say is an incredible truth as important as John 3.16 is and it is, what he says in verses 17 and 18 are equally stunning. What he's going to say is this, belief is a gift of God. Disbelief is man's responsibility. Let me rephrase that. Belief is God's doing. Disbelief is man's doing. And so, what a grace that God should love and move his life toward any of us. But belief is a gift of God. See also Ephesians 2. See also the book of Romans. Disbelief, human responsibility. And I know that might seem like, whoa, that doesn't seem careful. Because God so loved the world. He said, all you have to do is look. And if you even want to look, then it is because God is drawing. That's chapter six. We'll get there in a few weeks. Now then, verses 19 and 21, or 19 to 21. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
All they have to do is look, but some will not because they prefer to be their own little G God and not submit to the existence of a sovereign God and so they will simply perish apart. But those who do good, who, who obey the truth, do so to bring glory to God. To say, listen, there's nothing good in me, but what good there is that comes out of me is because of God, the light of his spirit in me. That's why I do good so that others can see. Mm, I'm not so sure about that. Well, John understands. And so he's going to give us now a quick case study to see what that looks like. Verses 22 through 36, the end of the chapter. We're just going to walk through this briefly and we'll be done. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also, this is John the Baptist, was baptizing. Hence his business card, John the Baptist. What do you do? I baptize. Okay, got it. At Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you, that's Jesus, across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and, and we're losing team members. People are going to Jesus instead of you, John. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Do you see? You get nothing unless God gives. John understands his whole ministry, his whole purpose was to simply get people to look to Jesus. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, that's the best man of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I have done what I have been created and sent to do. Do you know that joy? John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth, like me, John says, belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives, there's that word again, his testimonies. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son. Thank you, John, for giving us the full work of the Trinity in salvation in one and a half verses. That's pretty good. Central passage if you want to circle that one. He gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I want you to hear that. The wrath of God remains on him. Which brings me to our first point of observation or application. The wrath of God remains on him for those that do not believe. So here's our first point of application. And then of all of John 3, it goes like this. You're bit! That's it. That's point one. You're bit. And I'm bit. And we're all bit. You may or may not like feel like it, but listen to what Jesus himself is telling us about the condition of humankind that he comes to rescue and redeem. We are all, by birth, carriers of the venom of sin. It is destroying us and will continue to unravel and disintegrate our lives until we are all ultimately wrecked. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are all objects of wrath by nature. But, but, God's great desire is for every single one of us to transform into a trophy of his grace. 
Every single one of us is bit. And if we just look to Jesus, we can be transformed into a trophy of His grace. Sin is a really big deal. Such a big deal that Jesus took on the image of a curse, comparing Himself to a snake. But it is no match for God's grace. Speaking of which, point number two. The human problem requires a divine solution. You may think, wait a minute. He's used that one before. Mm Mm-hmm. Because it's in pretty much every book of the Bible. There is a huge problem. It is a sin problem. It's the human problem. And it requires a divine solution. No, we can't fix it. No amount of religion, doing, striving, obtaining, achieving, earning will ever remove sin. Ever. The human problem requires a divine solution. Man is corrupt by nature because of the fall and sin in Genesis 3. And no amount of fig leaves will ever cover us before a holy God. Something innocent has to die. Every other system of religion, every other faith construct is merely a program of knitting fig leaves together. That's all it is. And it simply does not suffice. In other words, the crushing blow is also a glorious grace. We have to look up and outside of ourselves. And the good news is we have all been invited to do so. If we'll just but look to Jesus. Just look at Jesus. So third point. What is this belief? Well, belief, let me boil it down as simply and as uh, hopefully, helpfully as I can. Belief is comprehending concluding and conducting. See, I like it because it's alliterative and therefore it's easy to remember. Belief is comprehending, it is concluding, it is conducting. What do I mean? Comprehending means understanding the content of the faith. There's a certain level at least we have to understand, oh, wait a minute, Jesus is God. He's not an angel, he's not a nice guy, not a swell teacher, not a pathetic martyr. He is God of God. We have to understand at least that Jesus is the Son of God. He did what he said he would do. He is the payment for sin. He is the fulfillment of the law. There is at least a basic level of understanding. That is comprehension. We have to understand this, that at the cross, something glorious and gracious and great and good occurred. So comprehending. Concluding. It's agreeing that this stuff is actually true. Not just being merely interested, not just understanding it, but saying, no, I think it's true. I absolutely agree with the claims of Scripture. So there's comprehension, there's concluding. And then finally there's conducting. You live your life as if it were really true. You see, we only believe something to the extent we're willing to act on it. So do you comprehend and do you conclude? Good, then you should conduct. You live in the world as if this stuff was true. Like it's the truest thing in the cosmos. You look at the whole world as if this was true. It it impacts the way you see every person, every interaction, every event in the world. And then you love in the world as if this was true. You are unleashed to love sacrificially because this stuff is true. So belief is comprehension. It is concluding. It is conducting. If we will but look to Jesus. I was reminded this week as I kept saying that refrain in my head over and over again, look to Jesus, look to Jesus about the story of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a 19th century preacher in England. I think probably one of the greatest preachers ever, certainly the greatest preacher, I would say, of the 19th century. And in Spurgeon's autobiography, he writes the story of his own conversion, of how he came to faith. It was January 6th, 1850, And it was snowing in London, an unusually harsh storm, 
Didn't usually snow this much in London, but it's a horrible storm on a Sunday morning. And this young Charles Haddon Spurgeon is desperately seeking. He's not a convert, not a believer, but he's read a whole bunch of theological books and, uh, and articles trying to make sense of it, trying to understand what he must do to be saved. What does he have to do? And so he left his home as a 16-year-old boy on a very snowy Sunday morning, and he just went in search of any church he could find, just some church somewhere. And he turned left and he turned right and he made his way down an alley until finally he came to a primitive Methodist church. This does not mean cave people. This means, that's a denomination, the primitive Methodists of the 19th century in England are kind of like, uh, well, how, how shall I say it? They're sort of, uh, they're an expressive, aggressive bunch sort of the the Pentecostals of the day. And Spurgeon makes his way as a 16-year-old boy into this primitive Methodist church, and there were 11 people in there. It was so snowy that not even the pastor could come in. So with Spurgeon, there was 12. And he sat in a dark corner at the very back of the room, and he just sat there until finally an old, weathered, skinny cobbler got up. And he made his way to the pulpit. And he found the little piece of paper on on the lectern, and he just read it. And this is what the paper was. It's from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. It says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. And Spurgeon writes that this old, primitive Methodist cobbler read the verse over and over again. And as Spurgeon put it, he soon came to the end of his tether and had nothing else to say. And so he just said it louder. And finally, scanning the room, Spurgeon said, the man realized that I was a stranger. I was unknown to him. And so he pointed that long, bony finger at me. And he said, young man, you look quite miserable. Spurgeon writes, I was unaccustomed to be publicly shamed for my appearance from the pulpit. And yet it was a blow well struck. He said, and you will continue to be miserable, young man, unless you turn and look to Jesus. And then he said, Spurgeon said, He screamed at me as only a primitive Methodist could. Look to Jesus! And Spurgeon said, I didn't hear another word he said. Because I simply yielded and I looked to Jesus and it all came clear. It all came clear and I was that day saved. There was nothing I could have done. I simply looked to Jesus I had been drawn, I knew not how, but I looked to Jesus. Decades later, Charles Spurgeon died. And at his funeral in London, people came from all over the country to the Prince of Preachers' funeral. And they laid him in his casket, and they took his Bible, and they opened it on his chest, and they put his hand on Isaiah 45, 22. Frozen in death, his hand to this day points out, look to Jesus. It's the call of his whole life. So this morning, (laughs) can I say from John 3, look to Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're still trying to figure it out, let me just tell you, like Nicodemus, there's nothing you can do but get the blood of Jesus on you. Look to Jesus. The Son of Man did not come to judge. He came to be judged in your stead. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to be able to articulate it in chapter and verse with four spiritual laws, nor the ABCs. Look to Jesus. And maybe you're thinking, I don't even know how to do that. I want to. Then you are being drawn. Look to Jesus. For the rest of you, perhaps you've been a believer for a very long time. 
and you've gotten out of focus, you've looked at everything else and the concerns of this life, look to Jesus. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.